try to kill us, but my village too strong. Long live the people. Here we go again with the bullshit you want. Long live the people. We have all these mixed blood people all across the country. We cannot exclude them. There's nothing wrong with being Red River Metis. We are all Metis. There was an attempt to define Metis. And we said no. There's Métis from Red River. What's wrong with Métis from someplace else? And they were also Métis people. Uniting our people is at a very sad state. We are all Métis. Well, welcome to the Jig is Up. Joining me as always is the professor. Hey, Jason. How's it going this evening, Darcy? Not too bad. How about you? I am enjoying the snow. Yeah, I heard you got some, or I seen that you got some snow up there in Whitecourt. Yeah, I tell you, it came a little bit early this year, so. Did it melt yet? Oh, no, no, it's still kind of snowing as we speak, so. Oh, really? Oh, that sucks. Yeah, got my first chance to fire up the fireplace and sit down and record some show. (laughs) Nice. Well, that's not so bad. Oh, there's worse things. It'd be better if it uh, waited a little bit longer, but you can never have too much summer. Well, exactly. So um, to start off the show here, I wanted to let everybody know that uh, we, I will be down at St. Patrick's Island here in Calgary uh, at, a, at an event called Arts Dance. And we're going to be recording some podcasts um, down there. Uh, but it's it's about bringing uh, Indigenous artists and, and artistic organizations uh, together. So if anybody's interested in they're in the Calgary area, uh, just head on down to St. Patrick's Island at 3 p.m. And I will be down there, and I'll I'll be doing a little bit of podcasting and then a little bit of whatever else. So if you're interested, come on down. And now, let's... Should be a good time. I think it'll be all right. And uh, we got a lot to talk about, man. Um, so I'm not sure if all of our listeners are aware, but I'm, I'm they probably are because this went out on the internet pretty hard. But there was some fishy business going on in Alberta. <laughs> and uh, that's my way of a joke. <laughs> apparently. Very punny. I know, I know. I'm, I'm skilled that way. But apparently if you plan a Métis camp uh, for your community in Alberta and you plan to catch fish and smoke it, you're going to be met with the cutting edge of Alberta's fish and wildlife investigators who will seize and destroy all fish. So uh, that happened this past week. Well, we don't we don't actually know that they destroyed it. All we know is that they took it. They might have gone home and ate it themselves. It was so good. Well, that's just it. I, I, from what I understand, they were about halfway finished. So maybe these guys took it home, finished it up, and had a good feast for them and their neighbors. <clears throat> no, I did put a couple phone calls in uh, to the Conklin Métis. I couldn't get anybody to come on in time because of short notice. And because they issued a ticket to one of the elders, um, it's kind of got the whole legal thing around it now. But what I do know uh, from my phone conversation is the fish were not actually caught at the camp. They were caught beforehand and brought to the camp. Uh, The fish and wildlife were tipped off anonymously, I believe, uh, that there was fish being netted at the camp without a license. And I, from what I understand, there was actually no nets. They didn't find any nets, and they so they basically just grabbed the fish with no evidence and ticketed two guys who may or may not have been actually fishing because they they don't know. Is that kind of the? Yeah. So it's my understanding that that's exactly what happened. Somebody tipped off 
the uh, game wardens, uh, they came out there. They found no evidence of uh, the, the fish even being caught there or that there had been a net used in the catching of the fish, but confiscated all the fish anyway. So yes. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I guess when you have all the guns, you can do whatever you like. Well, you know, that's the interesting, one of the interesting aspects of this is how is it they can just walk in, no evidence whatsoever, and just take the fish? I mean, that that was kind of my first question when I read it, that, that they found no nets, they found really no evidence of anybody even fishing. Well, then how can you take the fish? Like, I, that just, that did not make a whole lot of sense to me, but... Um, you know, I guess in this case with fish and wildlife, perhaps you're guilty until proven innocent. Maybe it's the opposite. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure on the legalities of what jurisdiction the fish and wildlife have, uh, and what these game guys caught to come in and confiscate. Usually, you know, if you're out hunting or you're doing something, the evidence is pretty obvious if you've shot something without a license, right? They're right there to, to catch you. But in this case, when the fish were already being smoked uh, on there, and there's no evidence of even how the fish were caught, I'm, you know, it's not like they, I don't know, did they get a warrant to, to come out to your place and steal your stuff? I don't know. Well, that's just it. I mean, and, and maybe we are both wrong. Maybe they have absolutely no legal requirement to, you know, find any evidence or have a warrant or anything like that. Maybe that's the way Fish and Live Wildlife operates. Um, but, you know, on, on the flip side of that, even if they were fishing, uh, and they, these were fish that were caught in the lake that, that was right there, I mean, it, it's not like these guys are mass fishing, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis and they're just killing the lake and depleting everything that's in it. I mean, this is a, an annual event. So so let's let's go devil's advocate here and say these guys were using a net and they, they caught these fish right then and there the day before the fish and wildlife got tipped off. Okay, so they caught, what, maybe, what was there, a dozen fish? You know, maybe, let's say 20 fish. But it was for an annual event. Like, if they do that once a year, I'm no fishing expert, but I'm pretty sure that's not going to deplete the entire stock of the lake every year. So, well, I think this is the real challenge, though, when it comes to um, Métis people specifically, <clears throat> because we're not, uh, we don't have a treaty and we don't have harvesting rights of any kind. Uh, because I've interacted with the, the department uh, on this before, basically they take a very, very narrow view of anybody operating outside of that um, parameter. So the minute you're not a uh, treaty with a treaty card that allows you to harvest, you're just Joe Nobody, and uh, they're going to treat you that way. So if these fish, the minute these fish would have been caught with a net, it wouldn't have mattered who you were, they're going to come for you because that's their punitive idea. The, the challenge I have is because no net was found, even if the fish were caught there, how do you know these people weren't sport fishing with sport fishing licenses? Well, that's just it. You know, there's if there was 20 people out there with fishing licenses and fishing rods and everybody catches three fish, that's a lot of fish you can put on the smoker. Well, exactly. And and I, would, I really would suspect that if this was a camp full of uh, non-Indigenous people, that probably the fish would have stayed. Uh, that's my personal feeling. I mean... They probably would have checked for licenses, and if they didn't find nets, and they didn't, so that they, you know they got a tip off that they were using nets. Well, if you don't find any yep. nets, right then and there, your your tip is incorrect. Your information is wrong, and I just highly suspect that if this had been a non-indigenous uh, group getting together to do this, and they walked in and found no nets, they probably would have walked out 
without any fish in their bags, and the people that would have would have still been able to continue smoking them and, and eat them. That's my own personal belief, because um, that's kind of what the government has shown in the past. That's their their history with this kind of thing. I mean, even when you have hunting rights in your First Nation, look at what happened when those those hunters crossed the imaginary Manitoba Saskatchewan line. Uh, they raided them. They went in full in and took all their moose meat out of their freezers and and did a full on raid for what? Because they crossed a border. But they have the right to hunt. Mm-hmm. So so they even have a treaty right, and they still don't respect that, you know? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. The the harshness and severity of just being able to walk in, uh, confiscate the fish, put it in a bag, and walk right out is completely indicative of how the Fish and Wildlife Department and its employees view uh, Indigenous people is that we don't have rights, we have privileges, and we can only exercise them when they see fit. Well, that's just it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I always think of these things and I think, oh, man, like, isn't there a little bit of your humanity that you have where, you know, you walk into something like that and you realize, okay, so this is a community event. There's kids here, there's elders, they're smoking some fish, and they're just trying to do some traditional things. You know what, let's just let's just walk away. This is We're good. That's how, you know, in my brain, that's kind of what I would see. But at the same time, I guess once you put on that uniform, you kind of give up your, it's uh, like a lot of things with uniforms, you give up your morals when the uniform goes on, and you just follow what you're told. That's the bottom line. Well, I realize that when you put on that uniform, you're here to enforce the law, and the law, by definition, is supposed to be blind. But with any law, we do see that every officer and division of the law enforcement has discretionary powers. What, what I don't understand when we talk about the humanity of it is if you got a tip off and you walked in there and let's say you think the fish are being netted. The challenge I have in that is look at who's there in the community and those kids walking around. How do the, the kids there now perceive that department? Yeah. Are they friend or foe? Well, we're raising a whole other generation of Indigenous people to really be disconnected from any form of law enforcement and view them as the enemy, and they're definitely not there to help you out. Well, that's just it. And, I mean, how do you go home and, like, how how do you feel good about what you did when there's kids following you, asking you to give back their fish and things like this? Like, I just don't know how you can just stumble into that and go, well, this is what's right, is we got to take all this fish. Because it's clearly not right. And like you said, they all have that discretion. Um, and w- why they couldn't have exercised a little bit more discretion here, I don't know. Uh, could like they? Like, I'm not actually sure. Like, I'm not actually sure. Do you have to, when you when this all goes to court, do you physically have to have the fish to, for it to be a legal case? Or would a picture of a fish suffice? Do you sleep better at night going, ha, those kids didn't eat no illegal fish? You know, like... Well, Exactly. Exactly. You know, oh, those uh, those kids and those elders, damn them. I mean, they're not getting our fish in our Alberta lakes. Like, I I really don't understand this. this um, but it goes back to that notion of the fact that, oh, you know, the Métis and the First Nations are the ones that are depleting all of the wildlife and the fish stocks because they have those damn rights. Um, and I think we've talked about this. I don't know if we've—I'm sure we've talked about it on the show— but that's kind of the prevailing attitude from the non-indigenous, I guess, sport hunting um, community is that it's it's the First Nations and, and Métis people that are the problem, right? 
Oh, absolutely. We see this all the time. You see it on uh, Facebook. I even saw it again. I think it was just today that uh, it's, you know, Métis people shouldn't have the right to harvest because then there'll be, you know, how many more thousands of hunters that can just go out into the woods and shoot whatever they want, whenever they want. Yeah. And I think that's a real misnomer. And I think that's, you know, really shows how colonized even our own people are becoming and that that's how we view harvesting versus sport hunting, really. It's quite sad. Well, it is. And, you know, there is a very big difference between harvesting and sport hunting. Uh, and and I don't think a lot I don't think a lot of people get that difference. I don't think they they just see hunting as hunting. Um, so when they see the hunters that you know shoot the biggest biggest animal they can find out there, so they can get that picture uh, with them standing over it holding the huge moose rack. Um, that's what they think all hunters do, and that is in fact not what you know harvesting is. Harvesting is getting food. It, that's what it's about, as opposed to getting a good photo op. Um, and in many cases, from the indigenous, uh, you know, and the First Nations that I know, that whole concept of like taking pictures of your kill and and that whole concept of the sport hunting mentality is actually so horrifying to them because it, it's just disrespectful to the whole process of hunting for food and finding that balance in in things. So, but but a lot of people, I don't think the general public understands what that 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 difference is. Well, I think that's a loss of knowledge all the way around. I think there are indigenous people out there who do sport hunt, and and that's just a fact. I do think the idea, though, that somehow um, indigenous people have a special privilege to hunt, and that's wrong, uh, is terrible. Uh, to put it frankly, I don't understand how. We allow society to continue to be so uneducated about the difference between a privilege and a right. It is not a privilege to harvest food for my family. It's my indigenous right. Yeah. And there's a big difference between that and sport hunting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, I, you know, moving forward with this story about the, the fish, uh, the Alberta government did apologize. And what uh, the minister, Richard Feehan, said was, he said that this was an unfortunate circumstance. I understand that there may have been some issues with licensing, but I think this situation could have been avoided. Uh, he said, I commit that we will take steps to ensure this doesn't happen again. So, you know, I have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? Take steps so it doesn't happen again. Like, you know, that's kind of a vague statement, but what does that actually mean? Like, does that mean it won't happen again to the Conklin community? Or it won't happen again to all Métis in the province. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a very open-ended statement that's ripe for interpretation. Well, if if it's the government talking, we can probably surmise what it's going to be. There'll be some uh, internal memos that are passed out. Uh, maybe some uh, sensitivity training, and uh, probably a good course on uh, how not to get yourself on social media looking like a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. other than that, as far as the law goes, and will anything legally change or will interaction between uh, that department and Indigenous people change, I doubt it very much. I agree with you. And, it, you know, it's like you said before, though, when you did go and you listened to the talk, they were very, very clear on how they felt about, you know, Métis hunting rights or harvesting rights. So it will... 
the minister just put his foot down and make that entire department fall in line? Probably not. You know, there's a lot of people in that department that have been doing it for longer than, um, you know, Richard Feehan's been minister, and they're probably not going to be quick to respond to changing a whole lot of policies anytime soon. And, you know, that's something that you've talked about before, too. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I've been there. Anyway, again, it's like we talked about, you can change the politician, but the bureaucracy stays the same. And unless the bureaucrats are changed out or there's some kind of top-down legislative change, we have to be quite honest. Uh, I can't see that there's less racism, racism in the uh, Fish and Wildlife Department than there is in the police department. So that's what we're up against. Well, that's just it. These these are very systemic things. I mean, it's you're dealing with systemic racism. You're dealing with a lack of knowledge. Um, it's it's very interesting. Um, with my wife running for city council here in Calgary, how very little knowledge our politicians and our you know civil servants, I guess, or people that work for the city and the governments, how little knowledge and understanding they have of anything to do with Indigenous people, and you know, we think, oh, how is that even possible today? But it it's absolutely true. Um, you know, the fact that the Indigenous education for our government employees is very lacking. Uh, anything to do with Métis, Métis rights, even First Nations, is very lacking. Really, all they know is, yeah, well, those guys dress up with feathers and they do a powwow and they have drums. That is essentially the very basic knowledge of most people within the government. So how do you expect... You know, one guy to just roll roll everything in and change all of that in what do they got left? About two and a half, three years, maybe. I guess that is just not going to happen. No, and that's exactly right. And I don't really expect politicians to know a whole lot because, after all, Métis people would we make up ninety thousand in this province out of four million? You yeah. don't get elected by understanding that kind kind of minority, right? Like, yeah. So yeah, it's easy for city, you know, mayors and and politicians to get elected and have no real regard for any of our indigenous rights. Absolutely, and and uh, just I did some research, and just so you know, uh, according to the Alberta government, there is a little over ninety six thousand um, Métis living in Alberta. We are the highest Métis population of any province in the country. So little woohoo! Now little. that can only translate into something real. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and one, my la- one last thing that I want to get in here, because I love to get in a dig every once in a while on the Métis Nation of Alberta uh, Association. It's kind of a hobby for me. But the one thing I will, I, I would like to say is, I did not see a public statement by the MNA uh, regarding this issue. Uh, I did not see the MNA bringing in their very highly paid lawyers to fight for this community. And if I'm, if they did, and I'm wrong. I will, and somebody sends that to me, I will absolutely admit that on the next podcast. But as far as I understand, I didn't see any action taken on the part of what is supposed to be the representative organization in Alberta. Um, They have a lot, they seem to have a lot of money to pay for lawyers, and they can have a, a legal team arrive at their annual, you know, general meeting every year. But then when it comes to actually defending our rights or or anything like that. Like they, in my opinion, they were completely absent. But aren't they supposed to be having these big talks with the Alberta government about 
harvesting rights. So wouldn't this be a good time to maybe make a statement and use this as a talking point or a point of leverage in those talks with the government? And I, I, don't, I heard nothing from them. I don't know. I don't know if you heard anything, Jason, but... No, it's it's like everything else. They're they're always absent from the picture. Uh, I didn't even see anything from uh, the local region office out that way. There was no, I mean, there's no publication or statement that was on any of their social media or on their webpage in support or recognition of it at all. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, it's the same thing. They don't get funded for that. That's not what their association is for. Yeah, I mean, they can try to pretend all they like and fund that out of their housing division if they like, but it's, you know, that's not what they do. And it, it really is showing in times like this, you know, they have a legal team, but it's not that kind of legal team. And so I'm hopefully, I mean, uh, as far as I recollect, the Conklin uh, Métis group up there is part of the MNA, And if they have uh, MNA members that are going to be ticketed and going to court, I would hope some of those lawyers would show up and help those uh, fellas out. Well, I sure hope so, and I'll remain optimistic that they will, but I, the cynic side of me says that that probably won't happen. But, I mean, you know, okay, so they don't get funding for this kind of thing. But what they do have is they have access to press. They have access to media. Uh, I'm, I'm positive that if the MNA phoned the local APTN reporter, the local CTV reporter, and all these people to talk to them about this issue, I am I'm absolutely positive that the press would show up. And so that, that's the sad reality of what I think these, you know, what we call the cartel organizations are like is you can't even make a, a you know, you can't even have a press conference. Like that doesn't cost you any money. You just say, hey, we'd like to make a statement on this time at, at this place in front of our office and everybody will show up. And to even just simply say, you know, we do not, we absolutely, you know, support this community and we'll be talking to the government the next time we get together. I mean, that's really essentially all I would have expected out of them. And I just think it's sad that people turn to this organization, and when the you know when the crap hits the fan, they're not there to help you out or even make a statement. So, but that's well, it is funny because I mean, I think it was last week we were talking about, uh, or the week before, how uh, the. Uh, chair i mean the presidente himself was telling us that uh, the prime minister had his phone number and uh yeah when it comes to metis communities uh he i think he must have lost the prime minister's phone number yeah exactly yeah. exactly right so let's uh okay so that we had this situation in alberta that, that just reeks of of uh, bad government policy <laughs> uh so we have that then we move to a little bit east. I know, I'm just, it's just, I can't help. We move a little bit east <laughs> to the Parker Wetlands protesters who the Canadian court system decided they were protesting illegally and that they needed to get off the land or they were going to be charged with, uh, and I actually think they're still pending whether or not they're going to charge some of them with um, whatever, uh, you know, illegally protesting or whatever the charge is. So we here we have a you know situation in Alberta where this happens, a situation out east where, uh, you know these people are protesting, saying that you know, this is the site of the you know Tin Town and Rooster Town uh, traditional Métis settlements, and and the court system said yeah nope they weren't we don't care and you got to get off so that we can develop the developers can come in and f continue construction so 
I think it's interesting how these two cases or these two things kind of happened all at once in Canada. And it just kind of reaffirms exactly where we stand when it comes to the viewpoint of the Canadian legal system, the Canadian governments of all levels. I don't know. What did you think, Jace? Well, I think that is the, the truth right there in a nutshell, is that uh, we say it over and over and over again on this show that the government of Canada, regardless of the color, is no friend of Indigenous people of any stripe. And this is just one more example of how the government can say, well, you see, your community hasn't passed the PALI test, so it's not anything really. You're just people in the wrong spot trying to hold up the righteous, you know, righteous movement of progress here, so you need to get the hell out of the way. And it's very disrespectful to the fact that our communities, by and large, have been lost or moved or can't pass the Pali test, not because of anything of our own accord, but simply because of the colonial government. And then we're supposed to turn around and say, well, see, you don't have a continuous historical Métis community, but so therefore you don't have any rights. Well, it's like, well, holy crap, man, we would have a historical Métis community if you guys hadn't showed up with guns. And kick this off. Yeah. But because we don't want to all start a war every time we have a community that we want to live in, somehow our rights aren't worth anything. Or our, our way of life, our communities, our hometowns where our people grew up don't have the same value intrinsically as those in the Canadian state. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I actually liked how um, there was a lady, uh, one of the protesters, or one of the protest organizers was a lady named Jenna Vandal. And I liked what she said because upon when she came out of the courthouse and the press was all there, uh, they asked her, you know, you know how she felt or whatever. And she said, uh, I'm not surprised. I know the, inst- the court institution is here to protect and enshrine property rights. So, and I thought that's a very uh, realistic way of looking at it. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that she said she wasn't surprised because in all reality, this kind of wasn't a big surprise. Um, and, and the fact that, you know, she even admits she's aware that, you know, the courts are here to protect property rights, not indigenous rights, not anything else. So I thought that was a very, very good comment to make, very astute comment, and kind of summed up exactly what happened. Yeah, it's good. It's nice to to come across indigenous people who are pretty aware of the situation, how things are going down. But nonetheless, even though they know the outcome is going to be that way, are still willing to stand up and fight for what is right. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, um, I could be wrong, but I don't see, you know, the thing that always that's baffling to me in these is, again, you got the lack of real support from these huge, massive organizations. And, I, I you know, it's sad that I, I understand the grassroots movements and things like that, but it is really sad when you have organizations that are supposed to be doing these things, and they're just not. And I think that's one of the biggest letdowns as far as... Uh, any of this goes is that you know we have to fight these things on a out of our pocket scrimping by on a grassroots level to barely scrape by to get any kind of you know right or 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 battle the you know people's the government stealing your fish kind of thing and yet there's organizations out there with millions of dollars that do nothing and uh I, I understand that's how their funding works from the government, and I think that's the the common theme here is you you can't get paid by the government and then say that you're supporting your community when 
the government's going to make sure that you do not support your community when they don't want you to. Right? Well, I think it's very clear. The the inaction by the major Métis organizations today uh, should speak volumes to every Métis person in Canada. Uh, when you have well-known Métis people who are the, the children of the founders of these organizations across Canada basically pulling out of these organizations because of the choices they're making, it pretty much tells you the state of affairs. Um, I think it is woefully uh, burdensome on the Métis people now to be able to step up to the plate in spite of our own organizations that are receiving millions of dollars in funding that do not support local Métis communities. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I was uh, doing some little bit more research, and I, I noticed that, uh, and this is totally off topic, but and we'll come back to where we're going, but I noticed that the Métis Nation of Alberta spent less money on cultural events than they did on office supplies in 2016. Well, 2015, 2016. So I think that's a telling sign of exactly what those agencies are or organizations are there for. So I, I, I thought that was really shocking. But I, I guess I shouldn't be too shocked. I don't know why I'm shocked, but it was shocking still. Uh, well, what's more important, my friend, Métis culture and identity or making sure you got enough toilet paper in the office bathroom? Well, that's true. That You know, one could become an emergency. Um, that's so right. Going from these two situations and, and the realization that relying on the government to, you know, support us, to support our rights, to provide for us or do whatever or or waiting for the government to give us these things these rights or in, somehow out of their good, the graciousness of their hearts, just suddenly go, yeah, you know what? You're right. You do have rights. Uh, we come to a conversation that was, uh, that I, I, we both had seen on Facebook and it was regarding, uh, a very unhappy person, uh, who says that the Métis Nation registry is being improperly run. And I don't know the facts. I'm not the one who started the conversation and I'm not in the MA, So I, I'm going to say this as though this is just his opinion. And his bone of contention is that, according, according to him, the MA bylaws say that if, if a person qualifies for Indian Act status, or they're supposed to send information to, the, to INAC in case there's anybody that qualifies for Indian Act status, and that the MA is not doing that. That's his allegation. That's his opinion. But this whole conversation then turned to we need to have a third party running the Métis registry and that third party should be INAC. And up until then, I was like, oh, well, that's very interesting. And then when that statement came out, I was kind of like, holy crap, we're going down the way down the wrong rabbit hole here. We just, we turned the bad corner. Because um, I've said it before, and, and I will say this till the day I die, but you do not want Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada or any government body of the government of Canada, any department, to be running a Métis registry because then it becomes a Métis version of the Indian Act. And as we all know, or we all should know, the Indian Act was meant to eliminate the Indian. So, I just, this, this just blew me out of the water that this is what people want. And in that conversation, there was a lot of support for it, or at least a lot of people saying, yes, we need to have somebody else handle this Métis registry. Um, I don't know. How did well, you for feel me, about it, that? It, 
I find it very frustrating, uh, the whole conversation, because it really shows that Métis people are either willfully ignorant or that they just don't care. Because the truth of the matter is exactly like you said. If we look at how uh, INAC has done with the uh, affairs of the, our First Nations cousins, there are roughly, we're down to about a little over 700,000 status Indians in Canada out of 4 million Indigenous people. That should be a startling figure to anyone. The government controlling any kind of registry, registry for Métis people would be about disenrollment, not about accuracy. And second, I don't know what kind of a person would want someone else to tell them who is or who is not Métis. I mean, I don't know how many conversations I get into where, you know, the, there's much pride in the statement of the Métis people are the people who know who we are. Well, if we know who we are, why would we want the government of Canada to determine our identity? And more to the point, it's even crazier to me that this is even a conversation because in the Daniels case, the government clearly came right out and said it has no interest in determining who's Métis and who's not. So what kind of frustration level does a Métis person holding one of these cartel cards have to have that their organization is so befuddled, so corrupt, that even when they're paid tens of millions of dollars for their registry, they can't keep it right for the membership? Well, exactly. And, you know, some of the, some of the vocabulary I found that, I, that was in that conversation from numerous people, I found very interesting because it's a very much... A, well, there's really no other option, so, you know, we just have to fix it, fix what we have, and keep putting Band-Aids on these things, and, well, that's why you can pass special resolutions once a year, and, you know, I know we've talked endlessly about how their, their, their system of the way they run their organization is not how a government, any government could ever be based, but, you know, some of the, there was one statement in particular, and it was that, the MNC has been given the political power and their definition of Métis has been accepted. That one statement kind of, it, it got me going because who, who accepts it? Who accepts the MNC's discriminatory and self-eliminating definition of Métis? The government of Canada does. Well, of course they do because the MNC is eliminating Métis on behalf of the government of Canada. If you don't see that, I don't know how much clearer it can be. And so it was things like that that made, like I just don't understand if if you know there's so many things if, if people are unhappy with their organization, go to another one. You know there's the Métis Na well, uh, Federation of Canada. So so go join them. It's run by people that have close ties to, you know, the Batoche area. Yeah, Gabriel Daniels is is a part of that organization. There's there's people that have the so-called MNC, you know, criteria that are running that organization. So why can't you go there? Why can't you go to our organization here in Alberta? Uh, like, so I'm just dumbfounded how people are absolutely staunchly opposed to changing organizations. We're just going to keep trying throwing band aids well, on what's there. I think the challenge for me when it comes to this conversation of identity and saying that the government has accepted the Métis National Council's version of who is Métis and who is not is actually fundamentally wrong. If you read what the Daniels case said is that there's Métis people 
all across Canada. Well, this flies in the face of the MNC uh, definition, which is that Métis people only reside in the Métis homelands. And then we further see this issue compounded when we have historical communities outside the MNC's strict definition of the Métis homeland being recognized in Ontario. So this is not in such an open and closed book as some people might be as closed-minded on it as, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that's very problematic, is that there's not this organization, the Métis National Council and the subsidiaries, only represent people who believe Métis is one kind of person. The Government of Canada doesn't believe that. They only fund the largest organization which happens to view that as a valid determiner of identity. But I don't know how, why, at what point do we come to in our Indigenous lives? We think that if the government of Canada accepts my definition of what Métis is, then I'm more right than you are. Yeah. Well, isn't that kind of the epitome of colonized, being colonized? Is when you turn to the colonizer to tell you, yes, you can be Métis today. I mean, is that not what the purpose of colonization is is to do? Is to get you well, to that's think what I'm that they like, have that power? Are Métis people suffering from some Stockholm syndrome here, where we think we <laughs> the government should should now tell me what is valid for identification or not? And somehow, if they attach money to my opinion over your opinion, Darcy, then mine's more valid than yours. Is that how this works? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, and, and but it is, but <laughs> see, that's the colonial system because those with the money have the power. And so, yes, you're, the, the organizations with the money get to say what is and is not. And that that is the founding, you know, that's, I mean, that's a principle of colonization is if you got all the money, then you get to make all the rules. And these organizations have all the money. And what always baffles me, though, is with all of this, is you look at any other culture or ethnicity or people in this country, and the only people that are fighting about cards and who is and who's not is Métis people. Uh, First Nations have their issues, and so do the Inuit. But, you know, a person born uh, who's born to Blackfoot parents, you, you, they're not arguing whether or not they're Blackfoot, Right. Or let's say you know I had a Blackfoot grandma. Well, a better a better scenario. So, yeah, a better scenario though is if you look at the like for the Blackfoot here in Alberta, for example, they're not a singular people group. They're made up of three different people groups. Three yeah. different tribes make up one. So, do they ever have a conversation about who is more authentically Blackfoot? Yeah, you know, yeah. which one of the tribes is more authentically Blackfoot than the other? Well, exactly. Exactly. That, that's a ridiculous conversation. And we can see that, you know, there's all kinds of confederacies in Canada with the different Indigenous tribes of our First Nations relations that are based on equal status between tribes to make that confederacy. Yes. You know, you, the Anishinaabe got the three fires, right? And so does that mean one is more authentically than the other? Exactly, but yeah, we as Métis, me as we as Métis people are having that exact conversation, and we're then we're turning to the most ridiculous party ever, which is the federal government, to be the determiner of who's more authentic than the other. Exactly, yeah, and and when did we? 
like why is that the the first thing that people go towards like and and i guess like you said it must be some sort of stockholm syndrome because this kind of seems to be becoming the go-to thing oh well i'm not getting the answer i want i'll go to the government they'll tell me oh i'll go to the government i'll go to the government why aren't we going to our communities why aren't we going to the people why isn't uh, the people that are in these organizations dictating what the definition is and who these things are and, and, and what's going on? I mean, that's how things should be done is, is you turn to your community to determine who is part of that community. Um, there is no, there is no um, ethnic group in Canada that would turn to the Canadian government to say, oh, can we invite this person into our community or not? Are they, you know, are, are they, um, you know, Pakistani enough? Like, I, I don't know. We're not sure. So we better get the government of Canada to, to check on that and re- and register. Like there's no group in Canada that's like that. Now, now arguably those other groups don't have indigenous rights, but our indigenous rights don't come from a card either. So they come from, you know, that community mentality. And, and I just think, We've, we've gone so far off the track when we're starting to turn to the Canadian government to solve our problems, and we continue to do so. But I think it's really systemic from the fact that we have so many Métis people now living in urban centres, and those urban centres don't have strong community. So they have might, you know, Métis people living in these centres might have uh, family ties. They might even have a little bit of a nucleus. But who, who's the leader in Calgary of the Métis community? You know, how many times how many times do we see on social media every week that somebody posts, gee, I wish we had Métis leaders like such and such, you know, where's the mm-hmm. Métis leader like like so and so. And, you know, boy, I wish we would have leaders today like we had, you know, like Harry Daniels or these other people. Well, the reality is I think those leaders are there. They just simply don't get the support of the people anymore because nobody's involved in community. Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree, and and I think um, I I think we've come to be so complacent to to just rely on, well, you know, we have these organizations and they're there and they get lots of money, so uh, I guess they'll figure out what's best for us. And it just seems to be a complacency uh, amongst Métis people that we we get fired up and we're we're upset about things, but we won't really take the next step, which is to actually take action. Um, and I've I've said this to other Métis people, and I get funny looks when I say it to people. The biggest action you could take if you're not happy with the Métis Nation of Alberta or the MNC or any of these organizations, or any organization, is to simply phone them and say, I will no longer be a member. Please delete me from your database and walk away. Because if, they, if, if that is the whole power base of the Métis Nation, that's their funding base, that is the important thing is the numbers. Well, if they lost 15,000 people in the next three months, they would be a very different organization suddenly. And you would suddenly see a very different type of uh, leader emerging from, I guess, arguably what you could call the rubble of that. And you may actually see those leaders that you that people want to see again. I'd, maybe. Well, you and I both know that the the quickest way to change politics it actually isn't from within; it's from without. Yeah. If people really wanted to to do change in, against a colonial structure, 
and especially one that's following the Roberts rules, the the best way is to to leave. Um, at the, and if we're not going to get people out of these organizations to really do something that is reflective of our traditions and traditional governances, then we should see, I mean, the next election for our provincial uh, cartel is, what, a little over a year away? Yeah, I think so. And uh, I, th- I, I think if we're going to see real change and if people are really pissed off, then we should see a real groundswell of people in the different uh, ridings uh, within the MNA who are going to start coming forward with a platform for change. And, and let's be real honest, when you got uh, 30,000 members plus and you had a less than 1% voter turnout in the last election, it shouldn't be very hard for you and your 10 friends to get elected. Exactly. And, and so we should be able to see come, come a year from now we should see a completely different MNA structure filled with new blood in new positions because they got that disgruntled vote for change. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I don't I don't think I'd bet on that horse, though. I don't think that's how it's going to turn out. I don't think so because, you know, you, you have these people that are so pissed off, but then at the same time, they'll be like, well, but, you know, they're just going to put who they want back in power. Okay, so you've... You're mad, but you've given up already. So I don't. Why don't you just leave then? If this organization doesn't like, and this is the part that really bothers me. If you're, if an organization is there and and it doesn't represent your beliefs, your morals, your values, your your ideas, your ideology, or you just don't see that organization doing what you think it should, why can't you leave? Um, I mean, this is why. Churches have fractured and created new new types of Christianity and new... I mean, it's all based on the same thing, but you got these different types because people weren't happy with the way that one was being run, and they felt it should be better run this way, so they broke off and went that way. Why can't we do, as Métis people, do that same thing? Just simply say, you know what? That organization could do what it wants, but that does, it doesn't represent how I feel or, or my belief system. So I'm going to walk away and go find an organization that does represent that as best as I can find, and I'll go with them, and I'll support them in their efforts. And I, I don't know, I don't understand why this is such a um, uh, a hard uh, speed bump to get over for any organization out there other than the cartel. And I don't know why Métis people aren't more open to the idea of moving to a different organization. It's it's really not the end of the world. Um, you know, they might not have the housing budget that the, the M&A or the cartel has, but they can do some great things too. I mean, there's a lot of grassroots uh, level organizations that can do some phenomenal things as long as they got support, any type of support from their local community, the, the province community, provincial community. There, it, it's, there's phenomenal things you can do. So, Well, even to flip this over though, if if people are involved in the MNA and they really want to see change in the MNA, with such a low voter turnout in the last election, then there is after this in a year from now, when we're still sitting here having this conversation, uh, you know, this can be very hard for anybody to complain about what is or isn't going on in that organization because they should have been able to easily win all the seats necessary to repeal, change, or enact all the bylaws that they want to see happen. Yes. 
when you have 30,000 members, if there's not a significant uptick in their voter turnout, and if there's not new blood coming into these ridings to change the status quo, what we really see is a 30,000 member organization of a great majority of people who honestly just don't care. Yeah. And then I would argue, then who really is Métis? Exactly. Well, I couldn't say it any better. You you always taught me. So that's it. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I wanted to... Oh, yeah, we have an announcement about this show that I, I posted on Facebook, so we're going to let everybody know. Um, we are changing the show a little bit. We're going to still do our political ranting like this every two weeks. But in the other weeks where we're not currently doing anything, we're going to start trying to put out some uh, podcasts where we're talking to Métis people out in the community doing some interesting or, or, or innovative things or new things uh, or, you know, Métis community leaders or anything like that, anything that is interesting out there in the Métis world. We're going to try to get those people on the show and just sit down and have a conversation with them. It may be about politics if that's what they want. It may be about something else, cultural things, whatever they want. But it's just kind of get to know who, what Métis people are out there and what they're doing. And just to let everybody know, hey, these, there's some really cool things going on that Métis people are doing and that they're leading or being part of. So we're hoping to do that every on the weeks we're not doing our political rantings like tonight. And the first episode of this will air... Next week, September 26th, we I will publish it. And I'm very happy with the guest who is a fellow podcaster and a strong Métis woman named Shelly Weird. And I hope you guys all tune in. She has her own podcast called uh, Women Warriors. And it's a great podcast. So uh, check out our podcast next week to find out more about her. And Jason, Ooh. any final thoughts? Uh, not that I know of. A couple quick things. Uh, we had posted a video on our YouTube channel uh, called Got Land. Uh, and it, uh, you can check that video out to talk about everything that's on there. But uh, just to reiterate, we did start a new uh, website called MetisStrong.com. And uh, so if people want to watch the video and then they can check out our website and they can log in through Facebook. And then we can uh, start to build kind of a community online for not only our youth camp, but some other projects that we got coming online to help build stronger uh, Métis communities. Absolutely. And we've even uh, loaded the videos and uh, the podcast onto the website. So if you really want to see that stuff, you can just go to the website there and see it as well. You can watch that video there. So we'll hopefully stay on top of it and get that stuff posted up right away onto the new face or the new uh, website so check it out yeah that's definitely hopefully uh, you know hopefully people get involved hopefully we see some some growth in the community out there so that's right we talk about uh, you know you and I kvetch a lot about uh, what the guy the people are not doing and people talk about what is going on and what they can get behind and what they can support so we take that seriously and have started to try to bring some initiatives and hopefully of the 90,000 plus Métis people in the province, we can get uh, a little bit of support to make uh, real change happen. Absolutely. So check out the websites and, uh, oh, we will be, uh, we're organizing right now for a November online auction. We're hoping to put up for the month of November to, and all the proceeds, 100% proceeds will go towards helping us put on next year's uh, summer camp. So, you know, watch for your, watch Facebook and check that out when it does come up. 
We're hoping to have it up and running November 1st until the end of the month and end of November. So hopefully we'll have some great things on there that you can pick up for Christmas gifts for others or a Christmas gift for yourself. So check that out. And Yeah, uh, for sure. And if you and if you happen to be a talented person, uh, unlike myself, I don't really have any good talents like that, who can bead <laughs> or has something that you'd like to donate, that you'd like that money from that item to go to kids, to be able to come out to the land and have that kind of uh, authentic experience, you know, to be able to spend time in, in Mother Nature when most of our people live in an urban setting, I think is is invaluable. Uh, you can check out our website to see all the pictures from last year's camp. And so we're just trying to build bigger, better for next year and give uh, more opportunity to more people. So if you do have an item that you'd like to donate to that, we would love it. Absolutely. We got some great uh, ideas for next year's camp and we just need a little bit of support to get them implemented. And I think it's going to be a very unique experience next year for all the youth. And I think it's going to be there. We just have some great ideas and we have uh, started getting, generating some great interest from people that are, that are wanting to get involved that, you know, will be a, a great asset to our organization if they do get involved. So watch for that. And yeah, if you can support us either by bidding or donating, that would be much appreciated. And if you want to donate, you go to our webpage, Darcy, which is? Um, MetisStrong.com. And from there, you can link to the camp page, which is SagittawaCamp.com. But Métis Strong is probably a lot easier to try to spell. So, so go to MétisStrong.com and you, will be, you can see the link to the camp website. Uh, and you can donate through either website and it all goes basically towards our camp right now. So good things. Good stuff. All right. Well, if Jason, unless you got anything else, I think that's it. No, I think that's everything for me. I think I got. Uh, I'm run out of run out of words. Yeah, I've ranted out now. I've I've hit my level of zen. So that's it. Until next time, the jig is up. Long live the peak. Hey. My late cooking came from Kawaka to express. Real warrior woman probably popping instead. It's poor man's if you wanna talk that language. A hundred clicks north if our is the rest. You still gotta be a chief to wear a headdress. So take your shit off before you ruin it for the rest. You better listen to your heart, there's too many heads. And watch what you say, man, there's way too many feds.